Last time my brother was here, I, I uh, told you that, well, I tried to kill him and he's tried to kill me, and what more can I say? He's my brother. <laughs> there is something more I can say, and that is that um, for a number of years I was away from the church not following Christ, and I still remember the phone calls and the times in the basketball court that my brother uh, stood there and told me to my face come back to the church, go back to church, come back to Christ. And he never backed down. And um, I don't know how many stories I could tell you, but uh, one that sticks in my mind right now is the night I was sitting in a parking lot and he, we were talking about music and what good music is good for the soul and what's not good for the soul. And uh, it was that day that I took all of my CDs and threw them in the trash. <laughs> Some decent music. So, in so many ways, my brother's been a guide in my life and in many people's lives, evangelizing them, always being willing to talk about Christ and share Christ. So, it's a great honor for me to introduce for a second time my brother Sebastian. participants in these series of talks that uh, St. John puts on. If you write a letter to the parish, <laughs> my brother's been trying to get this fixed all summer, and uh, there's been you know, some bureaucratic knots that need to be untied. But if, you could, if anyone interested would like to uh, write some letters uh, to the parish to encourage it to, to the air, their condition to get fixed, that would be helpful. Help out. Yeah. So, all right, tonight our topic is the number 666, the mark of the beast, and who really will be left behind. Some of those terms may not be familiar to you, and some of them you may have heard on a daily basis, some of you, depending on what circles you move in. So I thought we might be able to begin first with a few questions of, what is the number 666? mean to you? And it's okay. There's, you know, we're going to talk about these issues, right and wrong, and, and uh, where these things come from. So it would be good to just be honest. You know, what are some ideas you have about the number 666? Where have you heard of it? Where do you know of it? Yes? Well, it really doesn't mean anything outside of popular culture and you know, satanic you know, horror-flaking type of Okay, all right. Sort of like my brother's flyer he put up with all the flames behind the smoke and 666. That was what he was trying to do. Was he, was playing up he was playing up that idea of what, you know, what's going on out there. So 666, it doesn't really seem to mean anything. I hear about it in connection with satanic stuff and movies and Hollywood. What else? The Left Behind series. The Left Behind series. If anyone's familiar with that, we are the issue of the who will be left behind. We'll address that shortly. But uh, Tim LaHaye and his Left Behind series, very popular series of books, and also becoming a series of movies as well. Uh, Monty was in my class on Book Revelation this summer. We watched two of them for fun. Uh, what, uh, what are some other ideas about the number 666? Isn't it in, in one of the prophets, in the Old Testament, the number 666? 
Okay, say that again. Isn't it in one of the Old Testament prophets, 666, the mark? Okay, is it in the Bible? Is it in the Old Testament? Or is it in the New Testament? One of the prophets, where does it come from? Okay, so is it a biblical thing? Yes. Some other ideas? Anything else? Come on. You're all here. <laughs> it must have done something. What happened when you saw that picture? It's perfect. <laughs> I think yeah, the perfect imperfect number. Why? Because it's one less than the perfect number, seven. Okay, the number seven is oftentimes understood to be a biblically perfect number. Uh, and it means actually something much more than that as well. But So therefore, the number six, well, it's one less than seven, so the number of imperfection. And it's three times that, so it must be really imperfect, right? <laughs> so therefore, satanic. That's another one you'll hear. The numbers stand for some, some the initials of some person. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now the numbers, are, somehow the numbers can be used as a code to decipher someone's name or title. And therefore, why would that be helpful for us? What would you do with that information? How would, what would you do? If you got you figure out who it is, who is the Antichrist? All right, so now we're connected to the Antichrist. All right, what else? Anything else? We probably, we probably have explored most of it there. Okay, so the number 666, the number 6, the number of imperfection oftentimes said. Uh, or the or it's a biblical number. Is it in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the prophets? Where does it come from? What does it have to do with the Antichrist? Can it be used as a code to decipher someone's name? And does it have anything to do with Satanism? So, 666. Well, the number, first of all, just to, uh, most of those were on track. We're heading in the right direction. The one thing I'd like to, uh, though, clarify is that the number six is not anywhere in the Bible ever used as a number of imperfections. Right? But this is this is commonly you hear this. The number seven, in fact, itself is not in the Bible the perfect number. The number three is three is the perfect number, totality perfection. Uh, the the um, original request of Pharaoh by Moses was, "Let us go out into the wilderness that for three days' journey." That means completely out in the wilderness, way far away, that we may worship our God. And Pharaoh says, "No way, because once you're out there, you're going to flee." Three days journey, really far away. When in Exodus 19, when Moses and Israel arrive at Mount Sinai, God says to them in Exodus 19, Be ready on the third day, for on the third day I will come to you. Wash your garments and be clean. Prepare yourselves for three days. Perfectly complete, total. Uh, obviously, if you eventually see the number three, and often it's associated with our Lord's death and resurrection, right? Three days. He's completely dead. Not just asleep, unconscious slightly. Lazarus, he's not only dead, but how many days was he in the tomb? Four. Four days. Therefore, he must stink. Right? His sister right? His sister's not only is he dead, Lord, he's decomposing. It's four days. So, the number three, complete, totality, perfection. Number seven, is often he's a play in the Old Testament off of a Hebrew root, Sheva, the number seven, is the same Hebrew word for the verb Shava. And Shava is to swear, as in to swear an oath. You can see this used, for example, in Genesis chapter 21, when Abimelech comes and Abraham and Abimelech 
make a covenant at Be'er Sheva, at the well of swearing, or the well of seven, depending on how you want to translate it there. So seven, lots of examples used of seven in covenant. Uh, Genesis 9 with Noah, God says to him, seven times I make my covenant with you. So you see the number, the, the word covenant appearing seven times. So six, it's not the number of imperfection. It's actually the number, if you look at the examples of six, some great examples of it. What happened on the sixth day of creation? God created the world in six days. That's a seven-day creation story. It's actually a six-day creation story showing how God climaxes in his creative activity on the sixth day by creating man and woman in his own image and likeness. The climax of his creative activity. So six, contrary to what you might think, is actually nowhere in the Bible ever an imperfect idea, just as seven itself is not usually the idea of perfection, whereas three is. In the New Testament, because there's not a playoff of those roots in Greek, seven oftentimes refers to a Gentile world. I would think that six would be perfect because it's an even number. Seven is imperfect because it's an oddball. Three is perfect because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's, I'm not a mathematician, but uh, it, I'm sure there's all sorts of different ways you can look at it. Okay, so the number 666, it is in the Bible, it is a biblical number, it does appear in the prophets, in a certain sense, but not in the old, but the prophetic book in the new, that is the book of Revelation. And it does refer to satanic activity in a certain sense. And it is in a certain sense related to the Antichrist and things like that, but not in the way that you might be thinking. So let's look at the example in the Bible where 666, that number, appears. And that's in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. The last book in your Bible. The book of the Apocalypse. The Apocalypse. It's very apocalyptic. That's another nice number, right? What does apocalypse mean? Apocalypsis in the Greek just means unveiling, revelation. So we call it the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It comes from the first line of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. Chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, a very important chapter. We'll discuss how it ties into the whole book uh, towards the end here. But at first, let's look at this appearance of this number. This is in chapter 13, verse 11. Chapter 13, verse 11, to read in context. It appears down in verse 18, so we get the whole context. Then I saw another beast which rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It works great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of men. And by the signs which it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast... It deceives those who dwell on the earth, bidding them to make an image for the beast which was wounded by the sword and yet lived. To get you caught up. Three major enemies of the people of God here are being laid out for you. The dragon, which we already told was Satan. Then we hear about a beast coming from the sea at the beginning of chapter 13. And then towards the end of chapter 13, we hear about another beast coming out of the land. And these all three are working as a team, as the evil trinity. 
Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast should even speak, and to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain, also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. The mark, also related to this conversation. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast. For it is a human number. Its number is 666. Nervous yet? The book of Revelation is scary oftentimes for people because it's read outside of its context. Even reading this passage outside of its context can be dangerous for you, but when we work into the, the literary context of the, the, the um, historical state in the book in a little bit. But for the moment, what do you hear? You hear about a beast from the land, a beast that's come from the sea, and a dragon. And you hear about worship of an image of the beast. You hear about a mark on the forehead and on the hand. And now, we hear about the name or the number of that beast is 666. What does the mark conjure up in your minds? Like one of Tim LaHaye's books, the mark. So, the mark, what is the mark of the beast? Any ideas? Come on, 666, I know there must be the mark somewhere. Huh? I guess. Why not just the money? Has something to do with money, maybe? Or if it gets implanted in your wrist, it sometimes leaves a scar and it itches for a little while, but then it goes away. Microchip? A microchip? A subcutaneously implanted microchip. Right? Well, no, this is not, this is not wild. My bachelor's degree was in veterinary science. And one of the things we studied and talked about was one of the ways, one of the great inventions of our recent time, although that causes some radiation problems, is in planting in dogs a chip about the size of a little capsule, like a little Tylenol capsule you'd swallow, and plant it right between the shoulder blades of the dog or a cat uh, when the cat or the dog gets vaccinated. This is all involuntary at this point, but when a dog or a cat gets caught in the pound by a pound in a large city, oftentimes they're injected with this, and then they call the owner. And you can only take them home. They got this in it, and what that enables the pound uh, dog catcher to do is, next time he sees the dog, he takes his little scanner out. And he can scan the dog immediately without even touching it, and find out where this dog has come from. Very handy. Well, of course, as soon as that came out, people start talking. Well, what's next? Right. Well, what about the scanner, the self scanners at the grocery store, huh? What's going to happen next? It's not long before you, all you have to do is just walk through with your cart, and it all will be automatically scanned. And of course, your credit card will be in your pocket, or maybe implanted under your skin. And you'll just be charged as you walk through. Sounds kind of convenient. So they already started. 
sounds like it's already. Yeah, oh, with the dogs, yeah. This is no, no, I'm Hmm? Or your social security number. Who has, have you looked at your social security your, number lately? Or your credit card? Or your passport. Or your passport? Everybody has a social security number. Everyone has a social security number. Only in your business. Okay. So these are some ideas of the mark. Well, the mark is also a biblical issue, and we'll talk about that next. But first, let's deal with this issue of the 666, and it's related to the mark, and we'll deal with the mark next. The mark also is a biblical issue when it comes to the appearance of the Bible in other places besides the book of Revelation. So, 666. We talked about having, having a relationship with evil. We also talked about it having the possibility that it could be used as a code for a name. How is that possible? What are some titles for the Pope that you're aware of? Vicar of Christ. Six numbers. Vicar of Christ. Alright. Vicarius Christi. You probably have heard that one. Pretty popular. Vicarius Petri. Vicar Peter. Vicar. Uh, representative of. Right? Vicar. It's an older English word. Comes from the Latin. Vicarius. How about this one? Vicarius. Vicarius. Fili Dei. Who reads Latin? Vicar of the Son of God. It's pretty easy, right? Two simple genitive constructions. Vicarius, the nominative. Fili, genitive, of the Son. Dei, not Deus, so genitive, of God. Right? Very simple. Simple Latin. Vicar of the Son of God. Who's the Son of God? Christ, right? Who is the vicar, the representative of Christ on earth? Vicarius Filii Dei. Does anyone know what this adds up to? Vicarius, we'll start with this one. Vicarius. What's a V in, in Latin Roman numerals? Oh, five, 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 five. That's a five. five What's a one? That's a one, right? That's one. Five, 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 five. But what's A? A is a zero. A must be a zero, okay. R, put on R. Put on R. Zero, put on a one. Five. Five. One. Okay. And a U. Five. Good. So you know, the U and the V, as you know, is the same character. So an old, old script, you'll find sometimes that what you, where you expect with a U, there's a, what you think would be a V. It's the same character. Uh, so five. And S. Zero. Zero. Okay. Vicarius, Fili. Fili. What is an F? There is isn't it. Well, nine. One. One. What about L? Fifty. Fifty. One, one. One, one. And D. What's a D? Oh, I'm impressed. You know, you see how it blocks itself. So. Okay, 500. I teach at a, uh, a Latin seminary where every, you know, they all speak Latin. Some of them have conversational Latin classes. And it's not the few of them. All right, let's see ya. Uh, 500. Okay, E. Zero. 
one. All right. So 500, right? What do you have over here? 50. 50. 100. So if you add them all up, you end up with 666. I should have read that red. Are you denying that Picard is the Pope of the Vicar of the Son of God? Oh, well. Have you ever heard of Vicar Christie? Vicar of Christ, yeah. Have you heard that? That's a 200 and stuff. It doesn't work. Let me read you a quote from. A seven-day Adventist newspaper, Review and Herald, from 1866. The Pope wears upon his pontifical crown, and this may be why some of you have not heard of it, but maybe some of you have seen it. The Pope wears upon his pontifical crown, jeweled letters, this title. Quote, Vicarius Filii Dei, that is, the vice regent, or representative of the Son of God. The numerical value of which title is just 666. This is older English. The most plausible supposition we have ever seen on this point is that here we find the number in question. It is the number of the beast, the papacy. It is the number of his name, for he adopts it as his distinctive title. It is the number of a man, for he who bears it is the man of sin. Huh? So much for ecumenism. Huh? <laughs> Take off the gloves. <laughs> what do you think? Oh. I'm a milk kite. A couple of us in the room are, so this isn't a problem for me. Okay. <laughs> we have a different patriarch. Huh? Said Ronald Reagan. Also, six, six, six. Ronald Reagan. Oh, maybe. Well, he might be. He was. He was I think. Didn't he go to meet the Pope once? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what do you think about this? What are we gonna do? I give up. Actually, I became a Baptist yesterday once I figured this thing out. <laughs> so, now, what's going on here? Some of you already realized one of the problems. You stumbled upon something that's part of history for 2,000 years. And that is that not only have you never heard of this title, but the church has never in any official document of the Catholic Church used this as a title for the Pope. The origin of this title, the first time it appears in, in, a, um, uh, in an anti-Catholic manual, was in 1612 by Professor Andreas Helwig in his book Antichristus Romanus, the Roman Antichrist. So, um, 
That was the earliest we can trace it back as far as this title being imposed upon the Pope uh, in reference to 666 and making this whole connection with Vicarius Fili Dei. Now, what would be some other problems with this? Revelation wasn't written in Latin. Revelation wasn't written in Latin. Well, now that's not playing fair. So you can't use reason to a system that doesn't happen. No, really. So no, but what? That is an excellent point. Well, in fact, we'll touch on that uh, on the third point. But before we get to that, just looking at what I wrote for you on the board, what is there a problem? I stumbled upon it when we hit the A. Well, and I lost very quickly. There is that is one of the problems with the Roman numerical system is there are no zeros. Okay. Now applying zeros to them is to take a later numerical system and morph it into an earlier one. And so applying zeros, which may just seem very, if you you know move kind of away with some mirrors and smoke, this may seem to work. But if you think about it, you know anything about math, you can't just simply assign zeros to something that doesn't exist. Zeros are very important in math. Okay, so you can't take a system which does not have zeros and then apply zeros to it from another system and then make this work out. So a number of letters here are not part of the Roman numerical system. So we have an A, an R, an S, an F, and an E. That's a good percentage of the letters we're looking at. Yes? So essentially what you're saying is that the satanic kind of uh, opposition group wrote a book and smeared the Pope and gave him a fake title and applied all of this kind of... I wouldn't call it satanic. Uh, and, ...and numerology and crown to it, and boom. Professor Helwig, I don't know of what his spiritual, you know... Well, the Germans uh, have always been kind of off there. The hunt? The left. Uh, uh, the oh, come on now. I'm sure there's some Germans that would So, whatever Dr. Helwig's you know, interests were, I don't know. I would like to assume goodwill. But um, he he is the one who you first see make this connection of what of all the research I've done and, and, and seen on the issue. Uh, by the way, there's an excellent article kind of summarizing a lot of this on Wikipedia, if you're internet people, uh, which of course you know is part of the market. Uh, Wikipedia has a nice little article summarizing a lot of this. So, Vicarius Fili Dei. So not only as you, do you never see in any official church document this ever used by the Pope of himself or of the church describing the Pope. You will find it occasionally, for example, in texts like what we just saw with that um, assumption that it's on the tiara. By the way, have any, has, have any of you seen the tiara in Catholic view? Is one of the tiaras or Catholic view? What is, what is the tiara? You know, it's the crown, the colonial crown. Yeah, three crowns. Three crowns, that's right. Three crowns, the triple crown tiara. You don't see it so often anymore, but one of them is actually was donated to Catholic University to raise some money for Catholic University, and there it is in the, in the crypt. Have any of you seen it? Yeah. Have you looked inside it? <laughs> Next time you better look inside. Those who hold to this theory, realizing that there is no mention anywhere in history, in any historical church document, of this title. You say this title, which is specifically... Vicarius Fini Dei, this one up here. Yeah. What about the picture of Christ? Oh, sure! Representative of Christ? We are all vicars of Christ, I hope. They use the expression vicar of Christ. 
on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, because of the witness of Jesus, I am also facing tribulation. And I am in patient endurance with you. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the United States in 2007. So they will know. No. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then he goes on, he writes the, writes the book. So the book of Revelation is written, we see in the very first chapter, in a historical setting. The author's name is John. And all the earliest commentaries and all those who actually, individuals who actually knew John, say that John the Apostle was the John of the book of Revelation. Furthermore, if you look through the book of Revelation, you see tons of literary parallels between the Jonah literature, the Gospel of John, his three epistles, and this book. One of them you already saw. The Word of God, right? Jesus is the Word of God. And where do you find Jesus being pierced? In what Gospel? John 19. Not in the Jesus pierced in the side of the lance. So, as you go through the book, all through the book, tons of literary parallels and linguistic parallels between the Jonine writings we have, written by the Apostle John, and the book of Revelation, supporting what we already hear from the earliest uh, traditions about the writing of this book, that it was written by the Apostle John. And where do we know he wrote it, and why? He had his vision on Mount Patmos, and he wrote it for the seven churches of Asia Minor. What's so big about those guys? Why do they get a book that we don't? Well, they're very important churches. And John the Evangelist was the bishop or apostle in Ephesus. While the apostles spread out throughout the, that region, all the way even to Rome, John ended up in Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he ruled the churches of Asia Minor, governed them. But he was taken to the island of Patmos. According to Tertullian, one of the earliest witnesses we have about this, John the Evangelist was taken to uh, Rome and asked about this Jesus during the reign of Domitian. Domitian the Emperor. And you have a handout you can take home with you that has all this stuff in it. Domitian the emperor of Rome ruled Rome from 81 to 96 AD. Aside from Nero, he was one of those fierce persecutors of the church. And during the reign of Nero from 81 to 96, during his persecutions of the church, especially toward in the 90s, he began to bring individuals in chains to Rome and ask them questions about this Jesus the Son of God, and this movement. And John the Evangelist was one of them who was brought. Asked questions, found that he was associated closely with Jesus, boiled in oil, and survived. And having been boiled in oil, he was sent then to Mount Patmos to work in the mines. Until Domitian died in 96, and he was released, along with a number of other Christians, and there was a bit of a brief moment of, of uh, relief for the Christians. Domitian, after Nero, the major persecutor of the Christians from Rome. On Mount Patmos, 
probably in the 90s, sometime maybe around uh, 90 to 96, maybe as early as 81, somewhere during the reign of Domitian, probably in the late, uh, the, into those early 90s, he would have been taken to Patmos and there he had his vision. Why would God give him this vision? And that is the key to unlock, uh, unlocking this book. If you don't know who the author is, and you don't know who his audience is, and why Jesus sent in this message to deliver them, to them information about events that are very near, he says, that are immediately at hand, then the book will just simply become, you know, a decoder ring for modern events. And you'll be in utter confusion when you read passages about the beast from the land and the beast from the sea and the mark and 666. The other thing we're missing, and this is more of that historical context, is a biblical worldview. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I would probably not be surprised if very few of the people in the room have read through the Bible. Or, how many people who have read through the Bible room have read through it more than once? This is not just a problem in the Catholic Church, but a problem throughout Christianity. A lack of knowledge of the Word of God. And to the degree that we read the New Testament, or any book of the Bible, but especially the New Testament, without a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures, and especially the Old, is a degree that we in complete confusion about its meaning. I'll show you a number of examples. 666 on Mark and Beast, prime examples. What's going on in the book of Revelation in a nutshell is this. You have John in exile in Patmos, and he's writing to comfort the Christians of Asia Minor. Their bishop, their apostle, has been taken from them in the midst of the most severe persecutions of Christianity in Asia Minor since Nero. John, the last living apostle, is gone in exile. When they'll see him again, they don't know. Imagine the mind of the Christians at the time. As the Roman Empire is moving into the region and sacking Christian churches, burning Christian houses, killing Christians, and dragging them off in chains. So, Jesus Christ, in his mercy, gives a vision to John the shepherd of Asia Minor. And he asked him to send this in a letter to the churches of Asia Minor that were under his governance. And furthermore, what's interesting about the, even the list of the churches and the order that they're given is the order of the postal route, the Roman postal route of Asia Minor. This thing would have been handed down. It would have gone, if you look at the list and how they go through the map of Asia Minor, this was the postal route through Asia Minor. Locking you deeply into the historical setting. So the question is, not what does the book mean to me in 2007, but first and foremost, what did the book mean to John who received this vision, and what did he intend for his audience to understand? The Christians in, in Asia Minor were receiving persecution from Domitian, and he shows them that just as the persecutions that they received before, that is, from the religious authorities in Jerusalem, and even Jesus Christ, who was persecuted and died and rose from the dead. And Stephen, the first martyr. And all of these persecutions that broke out, that God eventually conquered that world in 70 AD. You're now a few decades after that. And Christianity is feeling another enemy. It's no longer Saul of Tarsus running around persecuting Christians. It's no longer the religious authorities in Jerusalem. The religious authorities in Jerusalem are gone. 
70 AD had destroyed Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, when the Roman Empire came in. The first enemy of Christianity was gone. But quickly taken its place was the Roman Empire, accusing Christians of being atheists and all sorts of other strange things. And so, with Nero and then eventually Domitian, the Christians of Asia Minor needed comfort. And Jesus Christ sent John to give them this message that just as he had conquered for them in 70 AD, the first beast, that is the beast from the land, so he will also conquer for them the beast from the sea. The beast from the land, the beast from the sea, these things are probably confusing to you because John never intended someone to be reading this book without having a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. The beast from the sea, the beast from the land, these are images that are taken out of the book of Daniel. Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and a few others are heavily borrowed by John for his imagery in the book because he expects you to have been reading these things if you were a Christian Asian minor. The beast from the sea is an image taken from Daniel chapter 7. The beast from the sea come out of of the water. The sea is the Gentile world. The beast we see in Daniel 7 is the, uh, the government or the empire coming from that Gentile world. John, borrowing that information, building from what we see in Daniel 7, shows you that the final beast from the sea, the great persecutor of Jesus Christ, the one like the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, is also the beast coming from the sea now, from the Gentile world, the Romans. And John gives you hope because he shows you that just as that beast was destroyed, so the beast from the sea will also be destroyed. And he shows that to you towards the end of the book. If you flip over to Revelation, chapter 19, towards the end of the book, you begin to have some resolution for the Christians. Revelation chapter 19. There's a great battle towards the end of the book. And evil is destroyed. God and his people are victorious, just as you see in Daniel chapter 7. And we see in Daniel chapter 9, or Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called all the birds that fly in midheaven. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So there's been a great battle, and the vultures are swooping in to get the flesh. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who in its presence had worked the signs which he deceived those who had received the mark. The false prophet is one of the other terms for the beast from the land in the book of Revelation. So the beast from, you saw the dragon in, in Revelation chapter 12. Then you saw the beast come out of the sea. Then you saw the beast come out of the land. Here now, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land are being destroyed altogether. And the beast was captured with the false prophet as the beast from the land, who is in the presence, had worked its signs, and she deceived those who received the mark of the beast and, who, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, and the rest were slain by the sword of him who sits upon the horse, the sword that issues from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. 
Sounds like scary stuff, but this is just images borrowed out of the prophets in the Old Testament. So what John's trying to show you is, look, Christians, my Christian people of Asia Minor, just as you saw God was victorious over our first major persecutor, that is the beast from the land, the holy land, the promised land, that is the religious authorities in Jerusalem, so also the beast from the Gentile world, the Roman Empire, will be destroyed. And as if you were to take them and toss them into a lake of fire. So be confident, be comforted, the time is near. Now, what did number 666 have to do with this? Where does that come from? What does that have to do with all of this? Well, again, John is expecting his audience, and Jesus Christ who's given this vision, is hoping that those who are reading this book in Asia Minor, and with good confidence there, would know the Old Testament well, the scriptures of the early Christians which unfortunately are forgotten by Christians today. You must be immersed in the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. Especially the book of Revelation, which is the final exam of the Bible. So the 666, what was it intended to mean for the Christians who first read this? Well, expecting a biblical worldview and a knowledge of the scriptures, it would have immediately brought to mind something very significant. That is a quotation out of the Old Testament. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 10. Because above the number 666 appears both in the New Testament and in the Old. And if you're going to understand how it appears in the New Testament, you've got to understand how it appears in the Old. One and the same. The scriptures, the Word of God is consistent. 1 Kings chapter 10. If you, had a, if you have an old Dewey Reams Bible, that would be Third uh, Kings. If you have an old Bible, an old Dewey Reams Bible, most of you probably don't have that. It'd be First Kings in your Bible, First Kings chapter ten. Context: First Kings chapter ten. In fact, First Kings, the whole first part of this book, is telling you about the story and the life of Solomon. As he takes the throne in chapter 2, from David after David dies, he rises to power, wipes out all his enemies, prays to God for wisdom, and God gives him wisdom beyond measure, beyond the, the, the sands of the seashore. Wiser than any man before or after him, it says in chapter 4. And you see... Solomon praising in his glory, in his wisdom. Because of his wisdom, wonderful things are happening to him. People are coming to him, the Queen of Sheba, and beginning to see the light of the Torah, worshiping Yahweh because of the wisdom of Solomon. Right on the heels of chapter 9 with the Queen of Sheba, we have chapter 10. And chapter 10 begins to tell you about the fall of Solomon. And the first sentence that tells you about that fall is this number. That appears in chapter 10, verse 14. In fact, you can see the tail end of the glory of Solomon in verse 13. Verse 13, And King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba. She had come to visit him, and she saw his wisdom, and she proclaimed that it was truly Yahweh, must be a, a wonderful God. And all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon, she returned and went back to her own land with her servants. And then, verse 14. Now, the weight of gold that it came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. 
Besides that, which came to him from traders and trafficking and merchants and from all the kings of Arabia and from the governors of the land. What are the problems we see with Solomon, though in great glory, having so much wisdom, he began to become greedy. And rather than preaching the word of God and sending out the Torah and missionaries out to the surrounding regions, he sent out armies to conquer them and to send taxes and gold. So the beginning of the fall of Solomon, which becomes a very dark chapter in the story of Solomon, that's the last chapter of the life of Solomon, here in chapter 10, chapter uh, 11. This is that first line that shows you something went wrong. 666 talents of gold. Huge amount of just taxation. But then there was plenty more he was getting from his economic trading and stuff, it says. And then he goes on to say, there was so much gold during Solomon's time, verse 21, that all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the houses of the forest of Lebanon, all the, all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, his house, were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kuwait. Chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Now if you haven't already, knowing the rest of the Bible, having read up to this point, you already, the author is showing you, he can tell you all sorts of things about Solomon. All sorts of probably other negative things that Solomon did. But he chooses three major errors. 666 talents of gold. So much gold that silver was considered like rocks. Stones you walk on. He had horses. So many he had to build cities. Megiddo is one of them, the, the chariot city, to house them. The way you used horses for in the ancient world, the chariots, for races. You like to breed them, they're kind of fun to look at. The horse is the Sherman tank in the ancient world. You don't use a horse to plow your fields and things like that. It's worthless. It's for speed and the war or the chariot. And then chapter 11 comes. And so if you read it up to this point, the author's already shown you enough that should cue you into something very wrong. And you'll be recalling the book of Deuteronomy. But in case you hadn't yet, he then tells you this. Chapter 11, now the king Solomon loved many foreign women. And not just many women, but foreign women. The daughter of Pharaoh and Moabite, an Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite, women from the nation that serve the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And you find out how he built temples for them. What's happened, I need to go there right now, you can just make a note, is Deuteronomy 17 has been fulfilled. Deuteronomy 17, Moses warns the people, or God goes to the mouth of Moses, and Deuteronomy 17 says, when you go to the promised land, if you put a king over you, do not let him do three things. Do not let him multiply his gold and silver. 
And do not let them multiply horses, and he better not go to Egypt to get them. And third, do not let him multiply his women, his, women, his wives, lest his heart be turned away. So the author is, again, assuming, as John was in the New Testament, assuming a biblical understanding, a, well, a good knowledge of Deuteronomy 17. And so, who are we talking about? In the context of the Christians of Asia Minor, in the context of the persecutions they've already endured, there's one figure that stands out among them in this part of the book of Revelation, Revelation 13, and that is Nero. Nero, Caesar Nero, <coughs> written in Hebrew, Neron, Kazar, adds up to exactly 666. Without having to skip letters or anything like that, and this is a title of a real figure in the period. That also works. So uh, almost every major biblical scholar, if you look at any serious commentary in the book of Revelation, will all point you to the same figure. Nero, Caesar, or Nero, Caesar, as it's written in the Talmudic writings and the other uh, Aramaic writings of the time among the Jews. This was the name that he went by, Nero and Caesar, among the people of Asia Minor, who would be Aramaic or, or Hebrew-speaking mixed in with the churches nationwide. And he was the major persecutor of the Christians, and he had already been destroyed. And so again, within the book of Revelation, this is part of the comfort that he's giving them. Domitian is just like a Nero. And just so you know that Nero, who was persecuted, was destroyed, so also Domitian will be destroyed as well. Take comfort by people. Guys. Okay? Uh, are you ready? You uh, the mark and left behind. It's part of the same price thing. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Oh, it's not that bad in here. I was thinking it was like 200 degrees. It's hot. Where are we? Where are we? All right, so what we're going to do is, is we're going to take um, about a uh, two-minute break, and we've got a little bit more wine and cheese there for you and water. Um, so you can stand up, get some refreshments. If you got to go, go. And we're going to do half an hour, right? Half yes, an hour. a half an hour on, uh, the, on the question of left behind. And the handouts from your desk. And, and yes, and we also have a handout on 666, which covers what he was just talking about. So you can take it home and review it. It's right there. Does One question? question. Yeah, there's any kind of a question. We'll take a break. And anybody that needs to leave, go ahead and go. If you want to stay for the second half. Yeah, this kind of stuff. Wow, this is exciting. Wow, end times, Antichrist, 666. Well, I hope this, if it does nothing else, I hope it will inspire you to start reading the Word of God. Start immersing yourself in, this, in the Scriptures. Because you can't, as St. Jerome said, ignorance of Scripture. But do you know it? It's ignorance of Christ. You can't know who Jesus is as the Christ if you don't know where that word comes from. It's a title all over the Old Testament. So if you don't know what that means and what the name Jesus means and where it comes from, the New Testament is just the last chapter of the book, the most important chapter. But you can't understand the last chapter of any book without reading what comes before it. So Acts the Apostles, great book to study. Uh, the Mark of the Beast. We saw that also in Revelation chapter 13, connected with 666. By the way, someone asked about Nero and Kazar, how does that add up to 666? Stick around if you want the question answer period after the session, and I'll write out an Aramaic on the board for you, the coding for how it works. So, the mark. What is it? Well, just like 666, the author is hoping, he's assuming, he's intending that his audience knows the Bible, the Word of God. 
songs of Tina Turner and Michael Jackson and Mary Kiss of Washington on MTV. So these terms, they should just be like a, a spark to, to, to the hay in your mind. The mark. What is the mark? Well, this is a term that shows up all over the Old Testament. And again, the book of Revelation is the image of the commentary on Testament events into the new. Where does the mark come from? We saw it in chapter 13, but it also occurs early in the book of Revelation. We saw that there's this mark, and we hear about this mark, and we associate with subcutaneous computer chips and weird stuff, you know. But we should have read chapter 7 before we read chapter 13, of course. Now, I brought you there, but chapter 7. Let's go back to chapter 7 and see how this is used in the book of Revelation. Hopefully this will shed some light on it for you. The mark is not a bad thing, necessarily. Depends on whose mark it is. Revelation chapter 7. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, and no wind might blow on the earth or the sea against any tree. So there's this wind that's going to bring the persecutions and the cataclysmic events to the land. This is the promised land. They're staying for a moment. Even that is an image we will see coming from the same passage in the Old Testament. They're held back. The winds are held back for a moment that they may not cause any destruction yet, these four winds that we saw earlier in chapter 6, this four horsemen are. And then we see, Then I saw another angel ascend from the rising sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been, who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, saying, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000. Do you know that's the number of Jehovah Witnesses that will make it happen? So, uh, that's another issue. So, 144,000 sealed. God seals His own. There is a holy trinity in the book of Revelation. There's a wicked trinity, mocking God. There is, God seals His own. And then the wicked powers that be seal their own with the mark. A mark. This is a common experience in agrarian cultures. You put a brand on something. Okay, that one's mine. That one's over there's yours. And so we tell them they get mixed together. What kind of mark are we talking about? So containing chips implanted in the first century, Asia Minor? Probably not. Someone branded on the forehead, walking around Asia Minor, ashes on the forehead. What are we talking about? Well, the mark, an Old Testament image. The first place you see this, first of all, is with Cain. Cain is worried that he's going to be killed because he saw his brother. And he says, someone's going to kill me now. Get vengeance upon me. And God says, don't worry, Cain. Yes, this was wrong what you did, but I'm going to put a mark on you. It's going to protect you. Anyone sees that mark, will know that they cannot kill you. You get the mark protection of God's protection. The next place you see this image appearing is in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, you hear the story of the Passover. We all know the story well, unless you've seen the movie. So, after the Passover, the lamb is slaughtered. The men of the house are supposed to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And we hear in chapter 12, that will be a sign, God says to most of the people. That when the angel of death comes through, he will pass over your house and not kill your firstborn. It's a mark of protection. The next place we see this is the very next chapter of Exodus 13. Because the people of chapter 12 who obeyed God's word and put the blood on the doorpost 
are a symbol of something more important. Not that they just like to eat lamb, but that they obey God's commands. And you see that played out in the very next chapter. So flip over to Exodus chapter 13, the chapter after the, uh, the Passover story, and you can see this image of the mark on the head and on the forehead. Exodus chapter 13. Verse 7, up here, verse 7. Uh, a bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. So the beginning of chapter 13 is a, a, a continuation of chapter 12. It is the regulation of the Passover and the seven-day feast of the leavened bread. And he says to them, this is an extremely important feast to you. So important that in verse uh, 8... And you shall tell your sons on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be, with, to, be to you as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. That is on your forehead. That the law of the Lord might be in your mouth. With a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. What is he telling you? Well, when on Sunday the kids ask you, Dad, why do I have to go to church? Shut up, get in the car. No! has done for us on this day, on the first day that he rose from the dead and saved me from my sins. That's what you tell your kid. And so, God says to Moses, tell the people to catechize the children. It shall be in you so pervasive that it would be like a frotlet, something hanging between your eyes. As wherever you look, you see it. And it's on your hand like a mark. So every time you pick something up, Everything is in light of the Torah, shining on what you do with your hand and what you see with your eyes. You see this image of the mark on the hand and the forehead associated with the law of God throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and other places like that. number of examples. The mark of God is not something that is actual image burned on your forehead. And someone will look and say, what's that thing on your head there? Oh, that's the mark of God. This is a mark... Meaning, it's, a, it's symbolically speaking, you are being marked by God. God can see that you keep His law, and you operate in all things by the law and the light of the Torah. This mark then shows up again in Ezekiel chapter 9. As I mentioned to you already, Ezekiel is one of the books that John borrows from heavily in his imagery. Ezekiel chapter 9, you find, if you open up your Bibles right out in the middle, by Isaiah and Jeremiah, you can Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel's prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And he's, this is, so this is 587 when the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. This is the first destruction of the temple, not 70 AD after the time of Jesus, okay? Ezekiel's prophesying to the Jews that the, God is going to destroy the temple, and these are the reasons why. And he shows them because of all the iniquity there is going on in the temple among the people of God. And you see this in chapter 9. Just as God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to destroy the temple, chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Draw near you, execution of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And lo, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. Every man with his weapon for a slaughter in his hand. A man, uh, with them was a man clothed in linen, and with a writing case in his hand. And they went and stood beside the bronze altar. 
Verse 3. So he's had a vision of the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherubim on which it rested in the threshold of the house. And he called to the man of God, the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark upon the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed. And to others he said to him, My hearing, pass through the city after me, smite with your eye, and your eye shall not spare, and you shall have no pity. Slay all the men and, men and maidens and little children and women, but touch no one upon whom is the mark. So the mark was given to the people of God in Jerusalem who were sighing over the iniquities of the people. That is, these are the people who are keeping Torah. These are the people who are abhorred by the paganism they see in the temple. And all these things. They're worshiping Molly and sacrificing children and things like that in the temple. Even the king was doing it. It's horrible. <coughs> the mark is a symbol that these people, like the people during the Passover, will be protected when God's angel comes through to destroy the city. In this case, in the form of the Babylonian army, they will be taken care of. And that leads us to our second topic, the mark, and who will be left behind, related. In the book of Ezekiel, we find who is left behind. The people who are left behind at the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 by the Babylonians are the righteous, the poor in the land. Go back to 2 Kings. 2 Kings gives you the story of what happened from a historical perspective. Ezekiel's giving you these visions. 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25 is the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. We find that when he comes in with his army, a series of three different exiles, he takes the most powerful, the army, the, the, smith, the, the silversmiths and all those people. This is 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. The king, his queen mother, and all of the, of the army and the, and the craftsmen. But in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 14, we hear this. He carried away all of Jerusalem, all the princes, and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land, the meek shall inherit the earth. Have you heard that before? Chapter 25, he goes on to describe more about this destruction that happened in the second wave of attack upon the city. When Nebuchadnezzar sent his army again, because they rebelled again against him, he sent his army this time to completely destroy the city and burn the temple down. And he does that, taking the next king who was in power, and that's in chapter 25. And we hear in verse 8 and following how he burned the city and the town and the temple to the ground. And he carried off everyone, verse 11, and the rest of the people who were left in the city, so from the previous exile, who had uh, the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. The Lamb. Our Lord, of course, when he's quoting things like this, is hoping that his audience knows the Old Testament. So, in the destruction of Jerusalem, the most horrible, cataclysmic event 
in the people of Israel's history. This was God's temple. This is where the presence of God dwelt among his people. This was the symbol that they were God's chosen people among all the nations. And that symbol was destroyed. And when those, the wicked, who were powerful and who should have known better, who were the most culpable, therefore, had been taken away from the promised land, the promised Abraham, those who were righteous and the poor had the mark that we saw in Ezekiel 9. And they were the only ones left behind. And we see how they lived in the time of Jeremiah. If you flip over to Jeremiah chapter 40, you get a vision of what happened to these people after Nebuchadnezzar and his army went back to Babylon with the exiles. What happened to these poor people who were left in the land? Jeremiah chapter 40. Jeremiah was one of them who was left in the land. Jeremiah chapter 40. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar and on the captain of the garden left him to go to Ram, from Ramah. Remember Ramah? And Rachel's weeping was heard as far as Ramah, Matthew chapter 1. That's where they gathered the exiles before they went off. So it's a, a sign of the, of the exile. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, So they gathered all the exiles around Ramah, put him in chains, and they're about to start herding him off across the desert to Babylon. And the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar was there, he said his captain, speaks to Jeremiah, the prophet, who had also, who had also prophesied that these things would happen. And he says, The Lord your God, Yahweh, your God, pronounced this evil against this place. Yahweh has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord, that is, you people, and did not obey his voice. This thing has come upon you. Now, behold, I release you today from the chains of your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it is good and right to go. If you remain, then return to get Eliah, the son of Achim, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed governor of the cities of Judah. Dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think is right. Go to Hawaii. <laughs> so the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present, and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the governor, who the Jewish governor had been appointed to oversee the land for the Babylonians, the son of Ahikam at Mitzvah, and he dwelt with him among the people who were left behind, who were left in the land. And what happened to these poor people? They left in the land. They must have been just enslaved and put in chains and had to work in the fields like migrant workers for the Babylonians. Must have been horrible taskmasters. No. Verse 7. When all the captain of the force in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed to get Eliah, so that he comes over the land, and it committed to him men and women and children, those of the poorest, the land who had not been taken exile from Babylon, they went to get Eliah. And then with the list of all these other guys. And verse 9, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them, saying, Do not be afraid. So all the people who are left behind, who had given, been given the mark, gathered to him, to the governor, and they said, and he said to them, Do not be afraid. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mitzvah to stand for you before the Chaldeans, who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil, Store them in vessels. Dwell in your 
your cities that you have taken. The place is empty. The Ferraris are parked in the garages with the keys stolen. These are the guys who are the migrant workers for all the palaces. During the time of Jeremiah, the rich had oppressed the poor. There had been two major class splits. And the rich were oppressing the poor so much that you had all the land been taken from them. You see this in the reigns of Jeremiah. And they'd become just migrant workers on the land, like slaves. They inherited the land with the palaces and the Ferrari and the SUVs. And how will it be? Gather wine and summer fruit and oil, store them in your vessels, dwell in the cities that you have taken. And this should recall for you. This should recall for you the story of the Exodus. When the people of Israel, God's chosen people, who had the mark, who had been given the mark of the Torah, even the sign, the symbol, the blood on the doorpost, went into the promised land, and God said, dwell in cities that you have not built. Reap of harvest that you didn't plant. And likewise, when all the Jews who were at Moab and among the Ammonites and Edom and other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and appointed Gedaliah the son, they all came home. And they gathered wine and summer fruit in great abundance. The remnant that was left behind. So, where do you get that phrase, left behind? I keep throwing that in there. You hear the title of the book. It's, you've heard it before, probably not from reading these passages. Though it's intended to evoke these images. And it appears in Matthew chapter 22. A misunderstanding of Matthew chapter 22. Not, uh, chapter 24, sorry. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, after he prophesies about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and says that all these things I've just told you in chapter 24 will come to pass within one generation. What's a generation in the Bible? How long? 40 years, Jesus made this prophecy in about 30 AD, 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And he says, but of that hour and day, you will not know, except for these signs that I've given you. And in that day, it will be like in the day of Noah, when the floodwaters came upon the land, and they were partying and giving in marriage. And who ended up being left on the land after the flood? Noah and those in the ark, saved by the... By the uh, mercy of God. Verse 40, he says, Then, so will I be the son of the, the coming son of man. Then, two men will be in the field. One is taken, one is left. Two women will be grinding the mill. One is taken, one is left. Watch! For you know not the day the Lord is coming. Watch to see the signs I've given you. But what happened? Who was taken and who was left? What's going on? Eusebius, the historian, tells us that the early historian around 400 tells us that the Christians in Jerusalem had received an oracle from the Lord. This is in book 5 of his church history. Read the quote here. If you haven't read Eusebius, you should. The whole body, however, so he tells about the destruction of Jerusalem, what's going on. He says, the whole body, however, the church of Jerusalem is the Christians, having been committed by divine revelation, given to them of men of improved piety before the war, removed from the city, and dwelt in a certain town beyond the Jordan called Pelham. As you know, just Transjordan is part of the Promised Land given to Abraham in Genesis 15. They crossed over the Jordan, got out of the way, the Roman Empire came in and destroyed the people who were in Jerusalem. The Christians who had accepted Jesus Christ and believed his prophecies got out. 
just in time because they saw the signs of the events. The sun, the moon, the stars being darkened. These are images from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 13. That's an image right out of Isaiah 13 and the other prophets, Amos and others, about the destruction of the ancient world. To say the sun, the moon, the stars not give the light is to say the second hand stopped. Right? We don't it wouldn't mean anything to Christians back then. For us today, if I said, and time seemed to stop. Or and the clock stopped. These are these are these would be metaphors for suddenly it's as if reality has ceased. Because the sun, the moon, the stars, Genesis chapter one, were given to tell time. The sun of the days and the, and the years and the seasons. Okay? So, left behind. Who will be taken? Who will be left behind? The Christians were the only ones left in Jerusalem after the Romans came and destroyed the city. They're the only ones left in that region to be inhabited. All the Jews who had not accepted Christ in Jerusalem were taken off in chains, and the, the, rule, uh, the Romans made a Roman city upon that land. All right? So, uh, we'll take a break here. Anyone has to leave can take off now, right? And then, yeah, question and answer. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you kind of destroyed my Protestant theology of the rapture and the Antichrist being the color. So I guess I'm, I'm only left with the uh, of the rapture and the yeah and the feast being the color. But the Antichrist, you still haven't missed that. One. The Antichrist. The Antichrist. What is the Antichrist? Well, what book of the Bible is the Antichrist appearing? Usually people think the book of Revelation first, but the word Antichrist doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist appears in the writings of John, 1 John in particular, where he talks about the Antichrist. And he says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Well, you could have still seen him. And so, many Antichrists have already come. Turn uh, to 1 John, so you can see that, so you don't get scared next time you hear the word Antichrist. John gave you some comforting words. John, also the author of the book of Revelation. Careful to avoid that term as he goes through that book. First John. First John chapter 18, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Cha- I'm sorry, chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And you have heard an antichrist is coming. And so now many antichrists have already come. Therefore we know... It is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they would, they would, for they had, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that is, they might be plain that they are not of us. But you have been made Christos, anointed by the Holy One. Who is the Antichrist? Who is the liar? But he who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. John's talking about heresies in the early church. Heresy means party or split off. Not parties like we're having tonight, but a party group. So in John's time, he's already seen, Paul's already seen it. Groups, he calls them the super apostles, he's mocking them, uh, or pseudo apostles in other places. These groups of Christians that are, that are teaching heresy already. Paul sees it. He's encountering it. John's already seen it. They left us, but they're not of us. And if they had been of us, they would have stayed with us. Therefore, we know. Antichrist, antichristos, just means a guy who stands in place of Christ. Anti in the original uh, in, uh, classical Greek, that preposition means in place of. By the time you get to Koine, it 
tends more to mean against. So in John's writings there, probably a little of both. Stands in place of and then also against. So opposes Christ, the message of Christ, and also may even stand in his place. That is to say, I am more important than Christ. To deny that Jesus was the Christ and therefore say, I am the Christ. But John says, you've all been made the Christ. You've all been anointed. In your baptism into Jesus Christ, you have become one with his flesh, one with his body. Paul says this in Ephesians 5. Why? Because Jesus said, Paul, why do you persecute me? Who is Paul persecuting? The body of Christ. Throughout Paul's theology, it's that connection. Okay? Yes? You referred to the faithful ones. Once I heard also the term anawim, and I don't know where that came from. Where did anawim is the poor. Yeah, the God's poor. poor. Ones. The faithful ones, the meek. Uh, you see a lot in the prophets. The ones who are being persecuted are the anawim oftentimes, not only uh, not only by Satan, the evil powers, but even the, the wealthy and those who are in power in the time of the, the age of the prophets. So is it in Greek origin? Or no, Hebrew. 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 Okay. Okay. The meek shall hurt the earth. The same idea is just a play off of there. The son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, uh, the man of sin. It could be a reference to a future individual coming, you know, some major cataclysmic event. Uh, but also in Paul's time, Paul's writing those writings before John is writing his epistles, decades and decades before John's writing his epistles. So is Paul, does Paul have in mind a bigger individual, or is he seen into the future, into John's time, the individuals that John's talking about? It would be, it would be a mystery. But it seems that Paul's seen something more into the future, whereas John is seeing something in his own experience and already experienced Antichrist. That is, we are all Antichrist to the degree that we oppose Christ. When we sin, we participate in Antichrist, anti-Christian activity, right? We oppose Christ in our sinful nature. We're joined the body of Christ, but to yoke ourselves to sin, as Paul says in Romans 6, to, to yoke the body of Christ to a harlot. And so... Uh, Keep that in mind. To, to, to the degree that you oppose Christ or deny Christ in your life and fail to preach his word, to the degree that we all, in some ways, assist the Antichrist or our Antichrist in that degree. So, uh, you already got one, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sebastian, not, not to give any credence to the whole you know, dispensationalist rapture kind of thing, but. When we read Revelation, and, and that's not a but, when we read Revelation, can we look at it from the whole Catholic perspective of both and, where I mean, if we read the Bible from the heart of the church in the four senses, and yes, it's absolutely. Father, very rare. I don't mean to, as, as uh, great. Dave, as Dave was pointing out, I'll be 14, 14, 14, there's a code name, right? Matthew 4, Matthew chapter 1. 14 generations. David, David, David. Okay, so. Well, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? What does the book of Revelation mean for us? As Paul's writings, and even more so in the book of Revelation, I have had people ask that before. So if it's all about this historical setting, then why should I read the Bible? Well, that's the reason why you should read the Bible. Because it's a real story. And Jesus Christ really walked to this earth at a particular time. If we, under, we really want to understand what that meant and what God did for us at that moment, we have to study that historical setting when God chose to intervene in time. And so when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, for example, he says to the Romans, to the Roman Christians, uh, the, the Jewish Christians in Rome, the Gentile Christians in Rome, get along, please. And he explains to them why they need to get along. As you read your Paul's letter there, you can even 
see your experience in your own church? Do you see divisions in the parish? Do you see one person leading a group and another person leading a group and a church divided? Especially in small parishes, you see that a lot. Uh, people who are arch enemies in the body of Christ. Insane. And so you can read Paul's writings and, his, and you can see that the early church was dealing with many of the same things we are today, at least in an analogical sense of, of, of conflict and people not treating each other as part of the body of Christ. John, in his first epistle, really deals with that, about the issue of love. If you do not love your brother, who you can see, how can you see who is the image of God among you? How can you say you love God, but you can't say you're a liar? If you say you love God, but you can't say, but you hate your brother, who is the image of God, you're not, you're not a Christian. You're an antichrist. So all of these writings, they, they have application for us, but the book of Revelation in particular, I didn't, we didn't read the whole thing there. Chapter 19 tells you about the destruction of... Uh, chapter 18 19 tells you about the destruction of, in chapter 20, the evil powers. The beast from the land was destroyed. That is, the religious authorities were persecuting the Christians, like Paul, Tarsus, and things like that. The beast from the sea, the Gentile world, was destroyed. We now can look back on what John was writing to the Christian major minor, and as if they took comfort in the destruction of the, of the religious authorities that were persecuting them, and knowing, therefore, that God would also take care of the beast from the sea, the little empire of the persecuted. We, looking back, know that the beast from the sea was converted to Christ in Constantine. And so looking at that, we can take comfort in the third age, the end time, which he talks about there as the thousand-year uh, reign of Christ. A thousand, you can see this in Psalm 50, for example, God is the, the, the God of a bull of bulls on a thousand hills. What about, there's more hills than a thousand in the world. A thousand in the book in the Bible is an enormous number, just beyond comprehension. So a thousand, God is the God of the, the cattle on a thousand hills in Psalm 50. That is, he's the God of all the cattle, all the creation, and all the rest that he's talking about in this song. So the thousand year reign of Christ is not a literal thousand years, but it's a symbol, as with all these other stuff in the Old Testament, uh, into the New meaning a very long time. And as Christ said, of that day and hour, you will not know. So, the thousand-year reign of Christ is the thousand-year reign of the church, and during that time, Satan has been bound. And we have the confidence and the comfort, we can gather from that book, even more so than any of the New Testament sense, that here we have a message about our own experience, that is, we know we're in the thousand-year reign, we know Satan has been bound by Jesus Christ. All we have to do is preach the word, and Satan falls in front of us. So there is a comfort that even though you see problems in the church, just as you see all kinds of things going on in the world, you can take comfort that knowing that just as Jesus Christ conquered the religious authorities that were destroying the Christians in the first century and eventually destroyed the Roman pagan empire that was converted them, so also the destruction of the dragon, which is spoken about in that chapter, will also happen. And we take comfort by knowing history, knowing that as God has worked in history, so we will continue working in history. Again, an example of why it's so extremely important to understand the relation is historical setting. Without that, the thing becomes nonsense. Yeah, why don't we just conclude there? If anybody has any questions, you'll still be around a couple more minutes to answer one. I'll, yeah, I'll stay around. Okay. Thank you all for coming. If you haven't put your email down, put it down.